Hello, welcome back to another episode, um, our final episode, looking at Elizabeth Eisenstein's work on the printing press. And it's time to talk about science. Fun fact about me, I fucking love science. I love it so fucking much. I kiss it on the lips right before I go to bed. To simplify it immensely, Enlightenment science, early modern science, came into being by overthrowing Ptolemaic astronomy, Aristotelian physics, and Galenic anatomy. All of these had been the prevailing paradigm in their respective fields for over a thousand years. But before we get into the specifics, I have to set the stage. There are scholars who think that there's something special about Italians or Italian culture or humanist culture that led to the Renaissance. A lot of this idea had to do with the dichotomy of books versus nature. There, there was this idea that the scholastics of the Middle Ages were too busy with books, arguing dialectically about specific lines, and only in the Renaissance did people take to nature, to measure, to observe, and thus modern science was born. Eisenstein spends a lot of time attacking this view, mainly um, Jacob Burkhart, a very important 19th century historian, and someone who Eisenstein thinks promotes this view. Eisenstein says that this dichotomy between the bookish scholastics and the Renaissance empiricist wandering through nature erases a key type of scholar, the humanist who spent their time searching for books, who learned not by disputation or empiricism, but recovering, uncovering. Eisenstein also gives many examples of people in the Middle Ages observing, recording, and measuring nature as precisely as possible. It's not like medieval people never measured anything, right? That's another thing this dichotomy of books versus nature kind of overlooks. Eisenstein also makes the great point that even direct observation of nature for scientific advancement is tied to books and writing, right? One needs to be aware of prior literature, and raw data must be written down to be checked by others, otherwise the observation doesn't have any lasting effect. So even without these counterexamples from the Middle Ages, even if literally every medieval scholar never looked up from their books, it still wouldn't be as strict a dichotomy as some seem to portray. Plus, there are other scholars who point to some maybe underappreciated aspects of medieval science that helped bring Enlightenment science into existence. For example, scholasticism was very fond of Aristotelian physics, perhaps fertilizing the soil for Enlightenment physics to bloom. Our view of humanism, too, can be made more complex. Many scholars think that 15th century humanism hindered, not helped, the development of science by ignoring the scientific work of the preceding centuries in favor of concern with literary style and worship of classical antiquity, as well as attacking scholasticism, hindering its scientific efforts that were already in progress. But other aspects of humanism benefited later science. For example, it provided a surge of interest in Alexandrian mathematical science, especially Archimedes, perhaps the greatest mathematician of antiquity. Archimedes was known in the Middle Ages, but wasn't prominent. His texts were rare, and his more difficult texts lay dormant, since people didn't have enough knowledge or access to knowledge to understand them. Humanism brought him into prominence. Eisenstein says that both medieval scholasticism and Renaissance humanism affected the birth of science not wholly negatively or wholly positively. And obviously, she's going to make the case that print was more substantial, or at least just as substantial, for birthing Enlightenment science uh, than any of these cultural, idealistic reasons. But if print was such a big deal for Enlightenment science, why had not many scholars before Eisenstein studied it, or even mentioned it? Well, we come to the issue of periodization again. 
due to historians specializing in the Middle Ages, when communication is looked at to see how it relates to the rise of science. There's more focus on the development of the postal service and scientific journals in the 1600s than the intellectual dynamism of the print shops and the effects of print in the preceding centuries. Not that those other things aren't important, though. Scientific journals were integral to the flourishing of science. Just like with the handwritten correspondence that preceded them, scientists could be notified of other scientists' work, but it was much harder before print to reproduce the data, like tables and figures and the like. So, in other words, these journals are very important for the rise of science, but they're kind of a result of print. Journals made the professional scientist more of a defined thing, and divided the scientific pursuit in new ways, because journals became specific to one type of science, one subfield, um, reinforcing boundaries between these subfields. The journals also created a way of keeping scientists in check, with rebuttals and critiques of their work, kind of like an early form of peer review. However, there were other trends integral to science that, at least according to Eisenstein, can't be explained by the rise of scientific journals and the postal services, Trends like serial publication, increased levels of data preservation, authors and editors benefiting from knowledgeable readers, and this interesting shift from secrecy to publicity on the behalf of scientists. What I mean by that last one is what I mentioned two episodes ago, how in the Middle Ages, scientists and others found it more beneficial to be secretive about what they were working on, because they didn't own the idea yet, and if they succeeded, they would finally reveal it to the public. But at some point, it became more beneficial for scientists to publicize their work as they were working on it. And that way, other scientists could chime in with a relevant tidbit or a good critique, moving the work forward. It's not like at some point, scientists just decided to be nice <laughs> and share their work. No, something changed that made it more beneficial for them to do so. You can probably guess what Eisenstein thinks this something is. <laughs> We talked about much of this two episodes ago, how it was hard to distinguish between recovery and discovery, how copyright and patent laws arose with print, all that stuff. This new ability to be public with one's incomplete ideas and work was incredibly beneficial for the development of science. Collaboration between different types of people had been seen before print, with things like the building of cathedrals, but only after the invention of print did large-scale collaborative data collection become a thing. Authors began expressing hope in their prefaces that their work was bettering humanity's collective knowledge. Some misinterpret this as a newfound altruism, when in fact selfish acts and the public good coincided in some new ways due to print. So let's look at some aspects of science preprint. And I should mention, in this episode, I'm mainly going to be looking at astronomy and cosmology and how that intersected with print, rather than having to go through all the different types of science, right? I think Eisenstein mainly focuses on that too. So let's briefly look at what astronomy looked like in Western Europe for the centuries preceding print, just so we have some specifics to ground ourselves and we can see how print changed astronomy. In the second century CE, a guy living in Alexandria in Egypt named Claudius Ptolemy wrote a text originally called Mathematical Treatise, a very catchy name, but it became known as the Algamist. It outlined his view of the cosmos, um, a few of the main features being the Earth is a sphere, the universe is a sphere, the Earth is at the center of the universe, the Earth stays still, doesn't move, but the universe does move. Within the large sphere of the universe, 
There are smaller spheres nested within each other that are used to explain the motions of the planets and the moon and the sun. This text, the Algamest, became the authoritative astronomical text from the 2nd century until the 16th century, so 1400 years. It was influential in antiquity when it was written, then at some point the text disappeared from Europe, but luckily it was preserved by Muslim scholars. It was recovered in Europe in the 12th century. 12th. Worst word ever. Um, I should mention that when I say Ptolemy's cosmic theory remained authoritative, I mean it in a general way. Advancements were made, including by the Muslim scholars who, you know, they didn't just preserve it, they worked in it a lot. But all of this was under the paradigm of Ptolemy's. Like, scholars in the 1300s probably wouldn't be reading Ptolemy directly. They would be reading something like the 13th century text called De Sphera Mundi, or On the Sphere of the World, written by this guy named Johannes de Sacrobosco, who drew on ideas from Ptolemy and also ideas from Islamic astronomy. Sacrobosco's work placed the Earth at the center of the universe and divided the heavens into nine parts. The seven known objects in our solar system at the time, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, the Moon, and the Sun, the sphere of the stars, and the outer sphere of the universe, which moves. The outer sphere moves in one direction, and the other spheres move in another direction, except for the stars, which are fixed. The universe is divided into the elementary part, which exists between the Earth and the Moon, consisting of water, air, fire, and Earth, and then beyond the Moon is the ethereal, the fifth essence. Many medievalists note, some somewhat perplexed, that medieval astronomy and physics couldn't advance beyond where the Parisians of the early 1300s had brought it. Azensen thinks that this is because Ptolemy's Algamest was still a very rare text, and most European astronomers weren't knowledgeable enough to read the entire thing or teach other people about it. So most astronomers in the Middle Ages in Europe contented themselves with just making copies of the text, translated from Arabic. Retaining the knowledge was hard enough, building upon it was nearly impossible. But in the 16th century, the, this vision of the cosmos that had been in place for 1400 years was overthrown by Copernicus's De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, or On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres. This work outlined a heliocentric model of the solar system, placing the sun, not the earth, at the center. So it's a completely different paradigm than Ptolemy's. It was still far from our modern conception of the cosmos, though. He believed that there were eight spheres of the universe, the immovable sphere of the stars with the sun at the center, and then the six known planets orbiting the sun in their own sphere, and the moon has its own sphere that orbits the earth. Even though Ptolemy's vision of the cosmos remained the authoritative paradigm for 1400 years, Copernicus's vision was only authoritative for about a century until Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica came along. Eisenstein's view, as you may have suspected, is that print and the subsequent alteration of data transmission had a lot to do with this. But she adds to this. She thinks that the reason that Ptolemy was able to craft such an influential work that remained the authority for so long is because of where he lived, Alexandria. I'm sure most of you have heard about the famous Library of Alexandria probably the most famous library in history. Eisenstein thinks that because the library and librarians collected so much data here, that Ptolemy was able to process this into a scientific treatise. And for the next 1400 years, data was not collected or available on the same scale or in the same way 
until print, meaning that astronomers couldn't overturn Ptolemy's work. They simply didn't have enough access to enough raw data. Only the effects of the printing press and the resultant transformation of the information flow and storage and availability could do so. Alongside Ptolemy's astronomy was Aristotle's physics. Um, I'm not going to get into it too much here, but keep in mind that his view of motion was not Newtonian, where everything's affected by gravity equally depending on the masses involved. No, Aristotle's physics had things that seem pretty weird to us today, like that bodies move towards their natural place, and what their natural place was depended on what they were made of, specifically the ratio of the four elements, water, earth, air, and fire, that they contained. Um, there's a lot more to it, but I haven't read them, and I'd rather mainly focus on astronomy and cosmology and its relation to print, since that's easier than going through all the different types of science, as I said. So let's look at some aspects of scientific inquiry in the Middle Ages before print. First of all, gathering scientific data was essentially the same as doing historical research. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? Well, let's take geography as an example. In the Middle Ages, if you looked at a few maps, it wasn't just the coastlines and the shapes of land masses and stuff that was varied due to repeated copying and lack of standardization. It was also stuff like place names. Maybe one mapmaker wrote down the Latin name for a place in the Middle East, while another mapmaker used the Arabic name. Or maybe there was a place that was called one thing in the year 500 and another thing in the year 1300. Or maybe a town on a map from a few centuries ago had since been abandoned. Trying to figure out if the two maps are referring to the same place, or which map is more accurate, these types of questions would not just take knowledge of geography, but knowledge about different languages, knowledge about the history of languages, knowledge about historical events that might have changed the landscape from the time the map was made. And this was the case for many other scientific fields too, like astronomers who tried to compare the work of ancient Greek astronomers and Arabic astronomers would not just have to learn the respective languages, they would even have to learn the relevant mythology, since a lot of ancient astronomy was connected to myths. There's all these things that make building upon existing knowledge very challenging. I mentioned how difficult it was to duplicate charts, diagrams, maps, and tables before print. Then of course, woodcuts and engravings made people able to reproduce images or tables or charts exactly and comparatively easily. This was revolutionary in a way that reproduction of text is not. Images can be understood across language barriers. Plus, now texts and images could be matched with less fear of them drifting apart. I mentioned that this was common in the Scribal Age two episodes ago. Sometimes the texts from these scholars of Alexandria were confusing for later scholars because there were no pictures, just words. Since any diagrams had been lost after centuries of successive copying, people eventually would be like, okay, I'm not going to try to draw that image, I'll just, write, I'll, I'll just write the words. So some scholars after print complained about this, about the hard to understand nature of these texts, and thought that it was the result of like a dark age mentality, a decline of being interested in the world. <laughs> but with print, scientists could publish very detailed observations and data alongside detailed images, without fear of too much corruption and without it being too labor-intensive. Standardization affected science in a major way. Um, earlier I mentioned that printers wanted to sell books to a variety of regions in order to make as much money as possible. This affected scientific publications too, leading to increasingly clear language and universal mathematical symbols, universal measurements, that sort of thing. The booksellers and the printers wanted to make it 
as easy to understand by as many people as possible, and standardization was the, a major way of doing this. This increased the divide between scholastics and humanists, one preferring numbers and one preferring words to summarize way too generally. It also, obviously, increased the ease with which scientists from different regions, cultures, and languages could communicate. Before print, universal measurements um, were very imprecise. There were things like the length of one's hand or foot or stride. People longed for more precise measurement. Eisenstein says that there's evidence that belief in mathematical order and precise measurement were not new ideas, just ones that were weakly expressed before print, due to the inability to coordinate data. Astronomers as far back as in ancient Mesopotamia wanted to become more and more accurate, but were impeded by the scribal effects on data, among other things. Actually, astronomical accuracy was very important to the church in the Middle Ages. This might seem weird because Lots of people have the simplistic view that the church just hated and fought against science uniformly. But before Copernicus, there were tons of Christian astronomers who were hired by the church. What? Why would the church do this? Richard Dawkins told me that anyone, anyone using science to try to get a more accurate picture of the universe was always a threat to the clergy, and they were always persecuted. Well, before calendars were printed, and before modern astronomy, and before the Gregorian calendar was adopted by the Catholic Church, it was incredibly complicated to figure out which day Easter was in each year. People used complex mnemonic devices or complex calculations. I probably shouldn't go into this too in depth because I doubt it would be very fun to listen to, but the word for the calculation to figure out when Easter was um, was called computus, so Google that if you want to learn about it. I'll let Eisenstein summarize here. She says, quote, By seeming paradox, their most sacred festival kept Christian energies bent toward puzzle-solving of a purely scientific kind. Until the advent of printing, scientific inquiries about how the heavens go went hand-in-hand hand with religious concerns about how to go to heaven, unquote. After print, astronomy veered into much more complex questions, leaving questions about Christianity and calendars in the dust. Only after print did astronomy become a threat to the church's power. Copernicus originally wasn't concerned with these calendar questions, but in his later years when revising his work, he spent a whole decade on the topic. Eisenstein compares these trends in Christianity to Islam, um, and some of the trends we talked about last episode. As I mentioned, the Quran was originally written in Arabic, and although it's an older form of Arabic, not having the Quran go through the linguistic changes the Bible did, from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, to only Greek, to Latin, to a more vernacular Latin, to all these other vernaculars, that meant that Quranic scholars and skeptics who wanted to poke holes in the Quran didn't have this comparative tool. Also, in Islam, there's a much simpler calendar that doesn't take into account the solar cycle, making the year 12 lunar months and celebrating Ramadan regardless of the season. So that means that the Muslim calendar became increasingly out of phase with the sun. Right now it's about 40 years off, but it meant that they didn't need any complex calculations like the Christians did to figure out when their holidays were. Or maybe their holidays were decided differently, I don't know. The main point is that both linguistically and astronomically, Christian religion pushed on the boundaries created by the scribal limits, perhaps more than Islam. And these boundaries sort of exploded after print. In Islam, though, there is the idea that one needs to face Mecca when they pray, wherever they are in the world, which necessitated 
you know, important studies in astronomy and geography, um, which were influential in Europe in the subsequent centuries. Eisenstein brings up that there are Latin and Arabic sources of pre-enlightenment science and Greek sources, and maybe mixing these sources together provided inspiration or made scholars see new things, new connections. Print, by making more literature available, made more mixtures possible. And we can bring in McLuhan for a moment. McLuhan thinks that not only did people think differently if they were in a culture with writing or without, or with different scripts, but sometimes he talks about um, variants between individual languages, even if they both use the same type of script. So maybe mixing Greek writings with Latin writings with Arabic writings provided a sort of mixture, not just of different content, but of different modes of thinking. But Eisenstein, thinking differently than McLuhan, well, what she's concerned with is the ability to put two texts or data sets beside each other and compare them. And she thinks that that would lead to a synthesis, or you could see where they diverged and try to figure out which one was more correct, which one was more wrong. If you had the complete works of Ptolemy and Copernicus at your desk, and were somewhat learned in mathematics and cosmology, you could compare them and try to figure out which one was more correct. But if you only had the work of one, or only had fragments of both, or had access to the works of both, but they were chained in different monastery libraries so you couldn't place them side by side, this sort of comparison would be harder. Science began to rely more heavily on equations, diagrams, tables, maps, charts. The abandonment of Roman numerals in favor of the Indo-Arabic numerals we use today was a big part of this too. In the scribal age, when books were more read aloud to classrooms and the students copied it themselves, it wouldn't really make sense to read out these things. Like, you can't read a diagram out loud, right? And they're, they're much easier to deal with when read visually on the page. Um, so we can think back to McLuhan's observation that after print, things were increasingly translated into the visual. Something else interesting is that there were many scientific false starts in the Middle Ages. Um, it's like they were kind of pushing beyond the paradigms that they were in, but they didn't have quite enough momentum. Some reasons for that might be the lack of certain mathematical skills and observational instruments, maybe scholastic obsession with the dialectic, where winning a debate maybe takes precedence over finding the truth, as well as the overabundance of religion and scientific thinking. But, not to sound like a broken record, but the lack of print was probably also a major aspect. Let's look at an example. There was this guy named Emmanuel Bonfils who invented a theory of decimals in the 14th century, but it didn't spread. Only when it was invented again by Simone Stevin in the 16th century did it spread and people built upon it. Another example, Campanus of Novera came up with some of the ideas of Copernicus and Tycho Brahe, another influential astronomer I'll talk about later. But Campanus of Novera came up with these ideas in the 13th century. However, it doesn't seem like Copernicus or Tycho Brahe ever knew about it and came up with their ideas independently later. The ideas of Campanus of Novera, in other words, they didn't spread either. From our modern vantage point, we can see these links, but people centuries ago couldn't. Only after print did these inventions stick and spread. According to Ernest Moody in Galileo and his Precursors, in the 1300s, there was no general theory of motion, but it appears to exist to us in the present because Galileo and Newton gave us the ability to select the necessary parts and 
discard the unnecessary parts of medieval physics post hoc, after the fact. What Eisenstein is getting at here is that maybe if the medieval scholars had a better way of organizing and transmitting data, like print, they might have been able to come up with a general theory of motion, they might have been able to spread Bonfi's system of decimals, they might have been able to spread some astronomical ideas that weren't widely accepted until centuries later. There's a similar thing with the practical as opposed to the theoretical. New inventions were made known by word of mouth or sermons before print, which wasn't beneficial for technical study or technical things. For example, lenses were known about in the 13th century, but not studied theoretically until the 16th century. Another thing to keep in mind is that the benefits of print weren't immediate, and in fact print heightened ideas that hindered Enlightenment science. The whole thing about how in the first century or so after Gutenberg, texts from the pre-print era were printed more often than new books, that happened with astronomical texts too. And it relates to the thing about images and words now being able to continue to be presented alongside each other. Medieval views like Sacrobosco's De Sfera Mundi weren't just uniformly humming along until they were overturned by Copernicus's model, they were often emboldened by the effects of print, because now images could be repeatedly attached to words, rather than slowly drifting apart, rather than them being hard to copy, um, and so this would give them more credence to a layman, as well as distributing these medieval ideas more, including to poets and playwrights who could distribute them into wider culture. So if it's just text, anyone who isn't a mathematician is probably not going to read it, but most people can understand images. There's this classic image of the Earth as the center of the universe with a bunch of circles around it, essentially just a visual representation of Sacrobosco's De Sfera Mundi. And this image had been drawn in medieval manuscripts, but it didn't become a fixed worldview in the eyes of the general public until after the Middle Ages, when print allowed for the image's widespread distribution. There's a similarity between print's effects on Christianity and print's effects on science. Scientific writing used vernacular for the first time after print, which led to increased interest from amateurs and created new disciplines like applied math and mechanics, which changed mathematical language itself. It also led to clearer scientific writing and less crazy theories made possible only by Latin obfuscation. This is probably another reason for the mixing of the theoretical and the practical that I mentioned in relation to print shops. Now people working away at inventing something practical could connect it to the mathematical or scientific theory, since that was now available in a language that was comprehensible to them. Now, I know I said we're going to focus on astronomy, but let's take a quick look at anatomy. Vesalius is the figure who really began modern anatomy. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the story of anatomy, but it mirrors the story of astronomy and physics. In fact, Vesalius published his magnum opus on the fabric of the human body in seven books, the same year that Copernicus published his On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres in 1543. There were many medieval anatomical revivals, but they always ended up degenerating. Not until the Galenic revival of the 1500s, after print, was the revival continued and made permanent by print, and this meant that discrepancies were made more noticeable. New editions of texts improved on previous editions, all that stuff we've talked about, which sped up anatomical inquiry, leading to Vesalius. 
Many scholars and preachers used the press to spread their thoughts to the public. Vesalius immediately adopted the press, whereas Copernicus continued handwriting for the rest of his life. Vesalius became kind of a celebrity, and his anatomy lessons would generate a buzz as though they were a theatrical spectacle. Copernicus avoided the press and the publicity that using the press would cause. This may be not due so much to character differences between the two, but more practical reasons, like the fact that an anatomical text would probably sell better to the general population than an astronomical one that contained math. Ew. Also, Copernicus might have feared the reaction of the church and the pious laity more than Vesalius. With anatomy and printing, there were high stakes. Rabelais, the 16th century writer, sums it up perfectly. He said, One wrong word may now kill thousands of men. Mistakes in anatomical texts often are less funny than the mistakes in those Bibles, right? They're a matter of life and death. Well, I guess printing Bibles that encouraged adultery might also be life and death, but you know what I mean. So the people studying anatomy after print, Vesalius and his colleagues, they were, well, not forced, but definitely pushed to be more diligent and systematic, more clear in their language, more reliant on illustration, more inclined to look for new methods of illustration, to make illustrations as clear and comprehensive as possible. Anatomy was altered by how engraving affected book illustration, and how all of Galen's work was published, printed, making Galen more thoroughly accessible as well. So this increased clarity and accessibility obviously improved the study of anatomy. But let's go back to astronomy and physics. Due to the small size of the Latin-speaking community of scholars and the lack of sales of scientific treatises, many historians think that scribal culture adequately served the scientific community. But Eisenstein thinks that this thesis ignores some of the difficulties of scribal culture. Books locked away or chained in university or privately owned libraries or religious libraries only offering texts to those of their order. Even if high levels of sophistication in a topic were achieved in one group of monks or scholars, it was difficult or they were unwilling to share this knowledge widely with other groups due to those transmission belts of information that I mentioned earlier. Regional boundaries were more restrictive too. An example of the scribal restrictions, the alchemist was barely available in any college libraries. Eisenstein thinks a key factor in advancing astronomy was having two theories of the cosmos, or two data sets to compare. This way, one could notice where they disagreed and could work towards figuring out which one was more correct. And the scribal age scholars sometimes didn't even have access to the full version of a text, and certainly not two whole different texts side by side. So it would be much more challenging to find flaws in contemporary astronomical systems. A big thing for astronomers of the Middle Ages and the early modern period were these tables that were used to map the position and movements of celestial objects, the sun, moon, planets, stars. In the 13th century, there were tables made for this purpose based on Ptolemy's cosmology, and these were called the Alphonsine tables. Copernicus owned a copy of these tables that he got bound in leather and wood, implying to us that the tables were very important to him. In 1551, this guy named Erasmus Reinhold made new astronomical tables based on Copernicus's model of the cosmos. These were called the Prutenic tables. These tables remain primarily in Germanic-speaking areas. Eisenstein thinks that these new Copernican astronomical tables might not be historically important because they immediately overthrew the Ptolemaic, Alphonsine tables. In fact, 
they weren't much more accurate, but because the discrepancies between the two tables encouraged astronomers to check with the night sky itself, increasing the reliance on observation. Bringing up observation brings us to another famous astronomer of this era, um, a bit over a century after print, named Tycho Brahe. He was another figure, like Isaac Newton, who was self-taught, and one of the last astronomers to just use the naked eye, not telescopes. If you know anything about him, though, it's probably that he lost most of his nose because he dueled someone in the dark with swords. Um, and the argument was over who was better at math, which I just think is so funny. <laughs> like, you think X equals six? You fuck! <laughs> um, Brahe is famous for, his, for the accuracy of his observations, among other things. Copernicus, for example, he didn't rely on new observations for his theory of the cosmos, he just interpreted old data in a new way. Kepler said that Copernicus interpreted Ptolemy, not nature. Although there is a practical reason for astronomers to look at old data, though. The fact that many astronomical patterns are very long-term. For example, there's something called axial precession, historically referred to as the precession of the equinoxes. Um, a phenomenon where the Earth's axis of rotation changes position in a cycle of 25,772 years. Like, you know those toys that you spin on a table, spinning tops? And if you're good at it, they'll spin for a while, at the beginning upright, but as their rotations lose speed, they start to wobble? Well, the Earth wobbles in a similar way, but very slowly. That's just an example of an astronomical phenomenon that requires lots of data over a long period of time, something that Copernicus could only gain by going through the data from the Alexandrian and Arab philosophers of the preceding centuries. And this data was made more organized and more available by print. Print also allowed him to trawl the annals of philosophers and mathematicians to try and find alternatives to the prevailing mathematical thought of the day. When Tycho Brahe was only 16, he realized the contradictions between the Ptolemy-inspired Alphonsine tables, the Copernicus-inspired Prutenic tables, and another similar table, Stadius's Ephemerides. Um, <laughs> I like how all these sound like sort of magical spellbooks or something. So he noticed the discrepancies between all these tables and the actual motions and positions of the planets, leading him to realize something that seems very obvious to us now, that continued observation of the planets is the best way to understand their motion. Eisenstein says that maybe Tycho was not different from the previous astronomers because he observed nature more carefully or cared about precise measurement more, because there were astronomers who tried to interpret nature, not Ptolemy, in the Middle Ages, like Geoffrey of Mo, if you need an example. But Tycho Brahe simply had two full different theories and different tables he could compare with each other. Printing led to a wealth of accessible data, which Brahe studied and found insufficient, leading him to seek new data himself. Tycho Brahe used the effects of print in another way, too. He used the power of the press to publicize celestial occurrences, making people excited and encouraging people to record their observations themselves. I'm not sure if this means just scholars or if lay people were involved in this exercise as well. But that meant that people from various regions could observe the same event at the same time, which meant that a lot more data could be gathered than before. Also, I guess, if it was cloudy where Tycho was, he could still find out what went down. 
the increased amount of observation led to an increase in noticing incorrect data in existing records and increased fixity. Most astronomers were pushed to check the predictions of the various tables against observation of nature. Open letters were issued across regions for certain phenomena to be observed and recorded, so they could be checked with other measurements, increasing accuracy. These open letters were made possible, or certainly much, much easier, by print. The most famous example of one of these celestial events is what's called Tycho's supernova. In November of 1572, a supernova appeared in the night sky, observable by the naked eye. Supernovas are, of course, when a star explodes towards the end of its existence. Um, this one, in 1572, was observed by Tycho, but also by many people all across Europe. There's even a theory that Shakespeare saw it, and references it in Hamlet. Hamlet was set in Denmark, remember, and Tycho was Danish. But that's all beside the point. Tycho published a work using his observations and those of others called, another catchy title, Concerning the Star, New and Never Before Seen in the Life or Memory of Anyone. <laughs> I, I just love old titles so much. <laughs> but this event was important because since Aristotle, there was the idea that stars were fixed. One of Tycho Brahe's main scientific achievements was the discovery that supernovae were not, as previously thought, tailless comets residing in the Earth's atmosphere, but rather objects beyond the moon, and that comets themselves were not caused by our atmosphere. As I mentioned before, he was also one of the last astronomers to not use a telescope, merely the naked eye, but Tycho's observations were instrumental in upending traditional cosmology. So if you think about it, this means that these observations could have been made at any point since antiquity, for they were done without any new instruments. The missing ingredient, Eisenstein thinks, is a way of organizing the data that had been so long dispersed and corrupted by script. Before print, cosmological events were smudged together. Only after print could one event retain the precision that it was initially recorded with. Um, only after print could the supernova in November of 1572 become known as Tycho's supernova, retaining a precision and a reference to one individual that Eisenstein asserts is unprecedented before print. There, there were other supernovas, like there was a supernova in 1006 CE, for example, but it didn't have the same lasting impact on astronomy. Also, I should mention, there were several other supernova observed before Tycho by like Chinese and Arab astronomers and others, but I guess those observations didn't make it into Europe in a significant way, and I don't know how they impacted Chinese astronomy or Arab astronomy. So let's continue on to another famous astronomer of the era, Johannes Kepler. Kepler was actually Tycho Brahe's assistant for a while, helping Tycho with some of his work that I mentioned earlier. Kepler is important because he came up with laws that describe the elliptical motions of the planets, which Newton used to come up with his theory of gravity. Kepler was taught three theories, Ptolemaic, Copernican, and Brahean. In other words, he had access to three models and could compare them. Students in Copernicus's time would be lucky to have access to one, even though there were multiple formulations of the Ptolemaic system. Kepler used this advantage and his own ingenuity to make his own astronomical tables, the Rudolphine tables, using Tycho Brahe's observations. Printing itself, not just its effects, affected most of the figures of the Copernican revolution. Um, and I love how it's called a revolution, because it's a revolution 
about revolution, about revolving. Anyways, one of Copernicus's main inspirations, and someone who may have come up with a heliocentric model of the solar system before Copernicus, a guy named Reggio Montanus, set up the world's first scientific printing press shortly after Copernicus's birth in 1471. He published the first printed astronomical text the following year. Copernicus had, or at least had the chance to read, a printed version of Euclid's work that contained 600 diagrams, making Euclid's work much clearer. Geometrical texts with illustrations were also very key to Kepler, too. Uh, Tycho Brahe was given an island by the king of Denmark, and on it he set up a research institute that included a paper mill and a printing press. There weren't many of either in Scandinavia at the time. Um, He moved to Germany at one point and apparently brought a printing press with him, hoping to set up a printing office. I have no idea how one transports a printing press in that era, but that's what I read, so. (laughs) Kepler's relationship to print was pretty contentious. Kepler heard that the first part of his book, Epitome Astronomia Copernicanae, in 1617, was to be banned by the church, um, and it was, on the list of prohibited books from 1621 to 1835, and he wrote to his colleagues in despair, worried he couldn't find a printer in Austria, wondering whether he should stop being an astronomer. His colleagues reassured him, saying that his book would still be read, even in Italy, by people with special permits. One cynically said that nothing is better for an author than having a book banned due to the subsequent publicity that is inevitable and the clandestine book market that would accommodate his work. Eisenstein remarks that, yes, having a printed book banned can be useful to the author. However, if it's banned before it is secured by print, and print shops are scared off by the banning, then it can be disastrous, and the author's work may be lost to time. There's an obvious bias in history, benefiting texts that still exist today. We don't know how many works were lost, never secured by print. Maybe there was like the most genius, atheist, philosophical text written in the 1200s that made Nietzsche look like the dumbest atheist YouTuber, but it was too spicy to be copied, so it faded into obscurity. We have no way of knowing. Kepler had further contention with print too. His Rudolphine tables were completed in 1623 but not printed for four years due to disputes with the emperor and Tycho Brahe's heirs, and the upheaval of the Thirty Years' War, too. (laughs) Eisenstein points out that histories of science are often separated from the political events surrounding the scientists at the time, because a lot of histories stop when the treatise is written, not when it's published. Or maybe saying the history of it stops is not the right term, since they go over its subsequent impact in science, and the responses of other scientists, but it's like they take publishing for granted sometimes, Uh, except for in very famous cases like Galileo. And that's actually a good segue. Let's talk about Galileo. I haven't mentioned him yet. Galileo advanced science in tons of ways. I'm not going to talk about all of them. He invented new technologies. He observed new astronomical phenomena with a telescope. He supported Copernicus's view that the sun was at the center of the solar system, and his work Dialogue on the Two Main World Systems in 1632 set the basis for modern dynamics, like inertia, acceleration, velocity, what would be called kinematics in high school physics. Kinematics was advanced by Newton further. However, the church did not take too kindly to this work, said it opposed scripture, 
put Galileo under house arrest, and banned him from publishing anything more. The imprisonment of Galileo affected the Italian scientific societies, the Lincei, the Cinento, and the Investiganti. The Lincei stopped the study of physics and astronomy. The Cimento was disbanded 10 years later, two of its members imprisoned by the Inquisition. Individual Italian scientists were affected too. Cimento avoided thought experiments and like sweeping, large-scale theories, contending themselves to more small-scale lab tests, and many others self-censored, refraining from the study of comets. When Descartes heard of Galileo's fate, he stopped working on his treatise on cosmology. So here we can see the importance of the Royal Society in England, um, because England was Anglican, right? Whereas scientists in Italy had to keep themselves anonymous for fear of persecution, um, it removed the incentive of becoming famous, becoming well-known for your scientific advancements. Whereas the Royal Society in England, they partially relied on authors coming from abroad who wanted fame. So that's why, if you've only heard of um, the Royal Society, and you haven't heard of the Lincei, the Cinento, or the Investiganti, that's probably why. But Galileo was lucky, in a sense. Um, dialogue on two world systems was so controversial, and his imprisonment so famous that it was a bestseller on the black market. And Galileo's later work, Discourses on Two New Sciences, it had to be snuck into the Netherlands, to Leiden, to be printed due to a variety of like political and military and religious conflicts the netherlands at this time was becoming a big printing hub in europe um, it's been suggested that the amount of books printed in this dutch republic called the united provinces um, in the 1600s surpasses the amount printed in all other european countries combined it's kind of funny um galileo's later work discourses on two new sciences it should have been uncontroversial because it didn't bring up any grand cosmic queries that you know you think would be the things that the church was concerned about but the church did still find it controversial and jesuits quickly started pursuing the book in order to censor um, this was one of the this was galileo's book that helped found classical physics which brings us to the next person and the last person we're going to talk about this episode newton who is considered to be the end of the Copernican Revolution, and who's the main character in my favorite story of scientific printing, that story that I teased in the first episode on Elizabeth Eisenstein. I don't know if you even remember, but it was how Fish might have stopped Newton's famous work Principia Mathematica from being published. Newton, of course, um, he, like Galileo, did a wild amount of things. He invented a new type of telescope, he advanced the science of optics, how vision works, he did a whole bunch of things. But importantly for us, he wrote the Principia Mathematica, the, the fundamental text um, of physics, the foundation of physics, until Einstein comes along. Newtonian physics is still used, of course, for calculating things that are on a human scale. It only doesn't really work well when you're dealing with the really big, the really small, the really fast, the really energetic, that sort of thing. A big part of Newtonian physics is the idea of gravity, and the idea that the force of gravity is universal. Newton was led to that thought, as I mentioned, via Kepler's laws of planetary motion. For Newton's upending and revolutionary principia to be made part of scientific history, it's important to not just document the forces that led Newton to write it, but also the forces that led him to publish it. Edmund Halley, of Halley's Comet fame, 
was integral to the process of writing and publishing Principia. Haley had a conversation about planetary motion with Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke, all these British scientists, in which Hooke claimed to have derived the inverse square law and all the laws of planetary motion. But he couldn't produce the derivation, so Haley went and asked Newton about it, seemingly giving Newton the spark to write what ended up as the Principia Mathematica. In fact, Newton said that he had already made the derivations, but couldn't locate where he put the papers. A few months later, he sent the paper to Haley. A little under two years later, Newton's first of three books of the Principia was presented to the Royal Society, who said they would pay for the publishing of all three books. Hooke, the guy from earlier who said he had made the important derivations, made a claim that it was he who had solved them first. Newton detested disputes, so when he heard about this, he said he was going to withdraw the third book, but Haley came along with skillful diplomacy and urged Newton to go ahead. But then something funny happened. Fish. The Royal Society had just spent a ton of money publishing a book called Historia Piscium, in English, The History of Fish. It was a book illustrated in remarkable detail. I seriously recommend googling it. Um, but that did not capture the public's attention, and it did not sell well at all. The Royal Society was left with not enough money to publish Newton's work, and reneged on their promise. Haley, who worked at the Royal Society, was told that his salary could not be paid unless he accepted their offer to pay him in unsold copies of the fish book. <laughs> I don't know if he accepted that or not. However, it seems like he didn't need the money because Haley thought Newton's work was so important that he raised some money and provided a large portion of his own money to get the Principia published. So some random fish book almost derailed perhaps the most important scientific achievement ever. Those are just some interesting individual stories, though. I'll let Eisenstein sum up what the main takeaway should be. She says, quote, One cannot treat printing as just one among many elements in a complex causal nexus itself. It is of special historical significance because it produced fundamental alterations in prevailing patterns of continuity and change, transforming intellectual and spiritual aspects of the consciousness of Europeans. It made the words of God appear more multiform and his handiwork more uniform. The printing press laid the basis for both literal fundamentalism and for modern science. It remains indispensable for humanistic scholarship. It is still responsible for our museum without walls." Unquote. And that concludes our look at the printing press, um, and which is something I'm very excited for because the next couple episodes um, I think are my favorite. Um, and I'm very excited that we've gotten to them. So I'll see you next time.